Before we dive into our study of Psalm 100 this morning, I'd, I'd like to do something that I rarely do. Uh, I'd like to take a moment of pastoral privilege uh, and, and share with you 12 lessons that I've learned about God's love over the last 12 years. Uh, and please know that I am genuinely willing to receive correction from my fellow elders and even uh, brothers and sisters in Christ uh, if these comments are unhelpful or fail to edify the body. My aim in sharing these 12 lessons on God's love is primarily for the purpose of instruction and edification. So what's the occasion for these 12 lessons on God's love in the last 12 years? Well, uh, today is a special day. Um, 12 years ago today, Lisa became my wife. And, and she committed herself to loving me for better and for worse. Um, and, and I share these things with you as, as an assembly of children, uh, singles, married and widowed uh, people, not because they are unique to marriage, but uh, because they're lessons about God's love. And, and one of the means that God has used and has been pleased to use to teach me these lessons is through marriage. Uh, God can and does, and even in my own life, has used other means to teach me these lessons. And he uses various means to teach his people. Uh, what is more, uh, our loving God, I, I believe, has ensconced these truths in God's word. And therefore, these are lessons that are really equally accessible to all of God's people, regardless of what season of life we are in or relational connections that we have or don't have. So enough with the caveats. Uh, let me uh, dive into these 12 lessons that I've learned about God's love in the last 12 years. Uh, first, love is generous. Uh, love does not find the most economical way of communicating, but the most generous way of communicating. God did not spare His one and only most beloved Son. The Father gave a generous gift that was infinitely precious to Him. Number two, love is patient. Or as the older translations used to put it, love is long-suffering. Uh, love waits in faith and in hope. God patiently waited until the fullness of time, the right time to send His Son. He suffered long with His people until it was the right time. Number three, love is humble. Love does not seek its own glory, but seeks the glory of another. Jesus always sought the glory of His Father. Number four, love says no. Uh, love sometimes means saying you may not, you cannot, you will not, no. Uh, the Lord's prohibitive commands are loving and good. Number five, love rejoices. Love rejoices in evidence of grace, maturity, and growth. The Lord is delighted. He rejoices over His people with singing when they honor His name. Number six, love forgives. Love honestly says, you were wrong. You sinned against me. And I forgive you. I will not hold your sins against you. I will not use them against you. I will not bring them up to make you feel guilty. Love forgives. Number seven, 
love chooses to believe the best. When there is misunderstanding, miscommunication, and hurt feelings, love is not tempted to believe the worst, but the best. Love chooses to believe that when someone confesses unintentional hurt due to misunderstanding and miscommunication, no malice is intended or was intended. Love recognizes that we as human beings are finite and fallible. And therefore, these things happen in life and not on purpose. And I think our Father knows this about His children. He knows that we're finite and fallible. Number eight, love moves toward brokenness. God so loved the world, the dark, sin-filled, wicked world that He took on flesh and entered into our experience to bring healing and restoration. Number nine, love commits. Love says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, there I will be buried. We need only think of Ruth's love for Naomi to remember that she was merely enfleshing the love of God to Naomi. Number 10, love persists. Love that reflects the love of the Lord is stubborn. Uh, It says, I will not give up when it's hard. I will keep going. I will keep loving you. God kept loving his people century after century. And he keeps loving us day after day and year after year. He loves us too much to let us go. Love persists. It's stubborn. Number 11. Love is kind. Love pays attention to the seemingly small, insignificant details, listening, so as to display kindness at the next available opportunity. Our Heavenly Father is watching over our lives from day to day. And His small providences are surely a mark of His love. Number 12, love keeps teaching. Even when faced with a difficult student, love keeps patiently teaching its recipient about its true nature and goal. Jesus, you see, he kept teaching his disciples day after day. They were hard of hearing, but he never tired of teaching. He loved them, and he loves us, and so he keeps teaching us. I am thankful for these 12 years of learning love's lessons. And and I am certain that however long you have been following the Lord, whether that's 12 minutes, 12 days, or 12 weeks, or 12 years, or more, that you're learning lessons about the Lord's love. And at some point, you should probably stop and contemplate those lessons and give thanks to God for them. And with that said, what better thing to be set before me and us this morning than a psalm for giving thanks, especially a psalm for giving thanks for the steadfast love of the Lord. So, if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 100. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find Psalm 100 on page 500 
of the Bibles provided. As I've, I've mentioned before, the, the Psalms, uh, they, they and, and we've been studying this collection, they're a collection of, of hymns and songs and poetry. They're divided into five different books. We began our study several weeks ago in book one with Psalm 13. We studied Psalm 53, which is found in book two. Last week we studied Psalm 85, which is in book three. This week we're studying Psalm 100, which is in book four. And I'm sure you can guess which uh, book our psalm for next week, should the Lord tarry, Psalm 111, what book that will be in. It's in book 5. Over time, the goal is to study through all of the Psalter. We tend to study a handful of psalms between our studies through other books of the Bible. So I I do hope that you'll stick around for the the whole series, should the Lord tarry. We'll be done in about a decade. Um, So our psalm at hand, Psalm 100. It's, it's, it's worthwhile, I think, considering the context in which this psalm arises. Uh, traditionally, the seven psalms that precede it, uh, Psalms 93 to 99, have been grouped together as a collection of royal psalms, proclaiming the, the regal nature of Yahweh's realm and reign. They were sung enthusiastically uh, by the people of Israel to their king, their God and king. In contrast to kind of other sections of the Psalter, which we've seen in our series, Uh, Psalms 93 to 99 don't really dip into the kind of discouraging times or emotions uh, for the people of Israel. Rather, these psalms are are actually kind of triumphant uh, poems and songs of rejoicing in God's creative power and remembering His redemptive love. Psalm 100 is situated so naturally, I think. Naturally, not because it follows a numerical pattern, but naturally because giving thanks is the appropriate response to reflecting on God's creative power and His redemptive love. Those realities, I think, are even embedded in this, uh, in the thanks of Psalm 100. So, uh, let's read Psalm 100 now. Let me read Psalm 100 for us. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. One Old Testament scholar suggested that the setting of this psalm is that of a company of worshipers in front of the gates to the sanctuary summoned to enter into the courts of the sanctuary with shouts and songs of praise. This seems to me a most reasonable setting. For several times in this psalm, the psalm invites its hearers to, to come and enter a scene of worship. Still, there are more than just two commands to enter into worship and thanks. There are actually seven commands. Seven commands are given to a people called to worship and give thanks. All because God is worthy of worship and thanksgiving. And how appropriate for there to be seven calls to worship after seven psalms of worship in Psalms 93 to 99. For our time together in this study, we're going to be unpacking the commands of worship, the people who worship, and the God who is worshipped. 
So if you're taking notes this morning, those three points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. The commands to worship, that's point one. The people who worship, that's point two. And the God who is worshipped, that's point three. Let's begin with our first point, the commands to worship. And as we begin to think about this, let's, let's just read through Psalm 100. And, and as I read through, let me encourage you to see if you can kind of spot the commands in Psalm 100. Commands to worship. Psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name for... The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. Did you, uh, did you spot the seven commands there in this psalm? Let's just run through Psalm 100 real clear, quick and, and kind of point them out. First command right there in verse 1. Make, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Commands 2 and 3 are right there in verse 2. Serve the Lord and come into His presence. The fourth command's right there at the beginning of verse 3. Know that the Lord, He is God. And then verse 4, it contains the final three commands of this psalm. Enter, give, and bless. Seven commands. Make, serve, come, know, enter, give, and bless. Those are the seven commands. And, and at one level, we could step back and say, this is really just one command. There is not a whole lot of daylight between some of these commands. What is more, they're all associated with the same activity, worship, thanksgiving. What we're looking at here is like looking at kind of a diamond from different angles. With each activity, we're, with each command, we're kind of turning the diamond and seeing a facet of worship and thanks that we are commanded to give to God. So let's, let's just turn the diamonds together, shall we? The people of God are first commanded to make a joyful noise. Does that, does that not strike anyone else as a funny command? To make a joyful noise. For, for some of you, uh, your, your singing probably popped into your mind. You thought to yourself, that's exactly what my singing is. Because I can't carry a tune in a bucket. All I do is, is make noise. My guess is that for those of you who make noise when you sing, your noise making isn't all that loud. Um, one member of our congregation likes to say that he's a blender when he sings. He likes to blend in to the congregation. I think that's, I think that's pretty funny. Um, the idea here, though, is actually not one of blending in. It's actually standing out. To, to make a joyful noise is to shout to the Lord with joy. A, that joy that so overwhelms the people of God that they shout out in thanksgiving and praise to Him. So you can say amen. You can say amen. Now, to be clear, I don't need you to say amen. But you may need to say amen because you appreciate a truth of God that we as a congregation are thinking about. An another interesting thing about this command is that joy is basically commanded. First one doesn't just say make noise. It says make a joyful noise. How can people be commanded to rejoice? I've, I've often puzzled over this. H have you thought about this? I mean, when we read that this morning, Paul instructed the Philippian congregation to rejoice. That command to rejoice is all over the New Testament. Uh, if you were to go back and read through Philippians this afternoon, which I uh, 
heartily commend to you. You'd notice that word rejoice is, is all over Paul's letter. And you might say to yourself, Paul, you're way too happy for a guy who's in prison. And I think that we need to have a theology of the Christian life that is robust enough to heed this command. And the good news is, is that Psalm 100 contains that theology. But we're not at the second or third point yet. We're just considering the second command now. Second command. Serve the Lord with gladness. This, this command to serve the Lord shows us something of the nature of, of worship. The true worship of God recognizes that we are called to a position of service. In the worship of God, we are not called to the position of being served, but to the position of service. You are not here to be served. You are here to serve. And Jesus has really shown us the way forward in this, hasn't he? In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus declared to his disciples that even for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The whole of Jesus' life was one of service to God on behalf of sinners. When, when Satan tempted Jesus, offering to him all the kingdoms of the world, Jesus responded by saying, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Sometimes we turn up to worship looking to be served. When we, we really need to walk through those doors asking ourselves, asking the Lord, Lord, how can I serve you with gladness here? Once again, our, our hearts are, are really laid bare before us as we consider the very idea that we're to serve the Lord with gladness. In, in God's kindness and grace, we're very often glad to serve the Lord. But sometimes in our service, sometimes our service is more gloomy than glad. Why serve the Lord with gladness? Well, we're not at our third point yet either. We're at the third command, which is come into his presence with singing. This is just kind of the basic stuff of corporate worship, right? When you come here, when you gather with God's people, you gather in his presence because the Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit is with us here. But notice this command, come with singing. You have to sing. It's, it's not one thing. It's... it's it's one thing to not know the song. We sing a lot of older songs. Uh, some of the songs were written in the 16th century, um, which, which means that they've stood the test of time, right? And are treasured by God's church for a reason. Um, you know, you're, you're not going to know every song we sing here, and that's, that's fine. So it's okay to, to read the lyrics, to, to meditate on them and learn. But if you know the song, obey the command of God. And sing. In verse 3, we're commanded to know the Lord is God. This knowledge is a faith-filled knowledge. It's a, it's a relational knowledge. What is being commanded here is a, is a knowledge of confessing that the Lord is your God. And that you can trust Him and follow Him. The rest of verse 3 goes on to make plain this relational knowledge. The people of Israel know their God and their God knows them. It's it's a knowledge that recognizes that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God. He therefore has authority in our lives and over our lives. To know Him means to trust His leading, submit to His authority, and to give ourselves to His service. In verse 4, we reach a command that we've heard before. Previously in verse 2, the people of God have been invited to come into God's presence with singing. 
Here in verse 4, we're commanded to enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Again, I think this imagery is, is that of entering the temple complex in the Old Testament. But the command is not all that different from verse 2. The thanks and the praise that's required is, is likely that of song. I, I do think that there's a, a difference between thanksgiving and praise. But they're intimately related. Praise would be giving God honor and glory for his attributes and actions. Declaring that he's worthy of worship for his attributes and actions. Thanksgiving would be expressing gratitude for how God's attributes and actions have brought good to God's world and to God's people. As I, as I meditated on verse 4 earlier in the week, I got stuck on that word enter. It's such a simple word. It's much like that word come there in verse 2. Here the people of God are commanded to enter, to come to worship the Lord. I'm sure that there were times that the ancient people of God didn't want to come to worship or want to enter into worship with God's people. Maybe we look back on our lives over this last week and think, why would God want my worship? Maybe we feel empty and have little to offer God. Those thoughts and those feelings are not unimportant. Uh, in fact, I'd say that when you're feeling that way, it's all the more important to come to worship. Our feelings of sinfulness or emptiness do not, however, remove the force or the authority of God's commands to come and enter into worship with His people. We're commanded to gather with God's people. Not only do we have that command here in Psalm 100, but in the New Testament we have the command of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Where we read, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. On the days that it's hard to gather with God's people, we need to remember God's gracious command. He knows who we are. He knows all of our faults. He knows us. And he says to us, come to me. All who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's a promise from Jesus. Part of the way in which we begin to climb out of the darkness sometimes is by obeying the good commands of our good God to come and gather with his people. Go ahead and enter into his gates, his courts, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And they will help you figure out how to do so with thanksgiving and praise once you get here. The final two of the seven commands are found there at the end of verse 4. Tonight, our, our brother James McClarty is going to unpack what it means to give thanks to God from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul writes, Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. James is going to unpack that wonderful verse for us. For now, I just want us to notice here in Psalm 100 that this thanks is directed to God. Give thanks to Him. Blessing is directed to His name. The psalmist is really basically saying the same thing from two different angles. God and His name are interchangeable all throughout the Old Testament. To give thanks to God is nothing less than blessing His name. But, but think about that for a moment. When we give thanks, when we worship God and bless His name, 
we give thanks to someone. Ultimately, we ought to give thanks to God. The one from whom, as we sang earlier this morning, the one from whom all blessings flow. Thanksgiving and blessing move toward a person. They either move toward a human person or the divine person, our triune God. Back in uh, November, right around the time of Thanksgiving, Dr. Uh, R. Albert Moeller Jr. wrote an article entitled, Thanksgiving is a Theological Act. And he said this in his article, quote, A haunting question is this. How do atheists observe thanksgiving? I can easily understand what an atheist or an agnostic would think of fellow human beings and feel led to express thanks and gratitude to all those who both directly and indirectly have contributed to their lives. But what about the blessings that cannot be ascribed to human agency? Those are both more numerous and more significant, ranging from the universe we experience to the gift of life itself. Dr. Moeller, I think, has a keen insight. Thanksgiving or blessing is a deeply theological act. And here's the question that each of us need to grapple with. Do we give thanks? Brothers and sisters, this is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm for giving thanks. It says so right there in the inscription. So do we give thanks? We certainly give thanks in our corporate services, in our pastoral prayer uh, one of the aspects of the prayer is almost always thanksgiving. So we praised and thanked God for the, His work in the life of a sister in Christ earlier. What about individually, though? Individually in our lives, throughout the course of our days, do, do we give thanks? Are we giving thanks? Are we calling forth thanks from the lives of, of others? Uh, as an, another brother and I were talking about the subject of thanks a couple of weeks ago, uh, I realized that there was a natural way in which uh, I could afford my children the opportunity to express thanks to God. So up until about a month ago, uh, when I would tuck my kids at bed at night, when I tuck the kids in bed, I would ask them, so, so uh, what was your favorite part of the day today? That's a great question to ask. But more recently, I've been asking, what would you like to give thanks to God for today? And, and children... Youth, young adults, let me encourage you to take some time each day and share with your parents or a mature Christian friend at least one thing that you're thankful to God for. And then have some fun and turn the question around on them. What would you like to give thanks to God for today? That would be a great and encouraging conversation to have. Brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, maybe you feel like you're bitter and that you need to be better about blessing God's name. Brainstorm some ways to give thanks to God each day. Maybe keep a journal. Maybe at the end of the day, write out a, a one-sentence prayer of thanks to God at the end of each day. Something, something simple like, Lord, thank you for that gentle correction from my brother in Christ. Or, Lord, thank you for allowing that meeting at work to go better than I had hoped. Or, Lord, thank you for the privilege of sharing your good news with my neighbor. Give her faith. Let's give thanks to our God. Well, having considered the commands to worship, let's now turn to consider our second point, the people who worship. And here I want us to think about a little phrase that's tacked on to the end of verse 1, the people uh, who worship, and a phrase there, kind of, well, really the middle and last part of verse 3. Let me uh, begin by reading verse 1 again of the psalm. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. 
You may have noticed this when we sang. John certainly pointed it out when we sang earlier in hymn number 5, All People That Are To Dwell. It's a paraphrase of Psalm 100 and Psalm 134. The tune of the psalm, uh, the song is even called the Old 100th. So we sing the psalms here. Uh, and we're just trying to obey the Bible's commands to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. The authors of all people that on earth do dwell, William Keith and Thomas Ken, took the words, uh, all the earth, here in Psalm 100, to mean all the people of the earth. And frankly, they were right to do so. What's in view is not a call to the creation to sing God's praises, though the heavens certainly declare the glories and wonders of God. But what is in view here is a corporate call to the people of God to sing to the Lord with a cheerful voice. This phrase, all the earth, reminds us that God has always intended people from every tongue and tribe and nation across the globe to come to Him in faith. God has, from the very beginning, declared that He would redeem sinners from all over the created order and make them His people. We see it in His promises to Abraham in Genesis 12, that in and through His offspring, which would be Jesus Christ, the nations of the earth would be blessed. We see it in glimpses of this in the Old Testament histories when Gentiles like Rahab and Ruth are gathered into the people of God. We see it in the Psalms, as in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, where the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. We see it in the prophets, like the prophet Isaiah, chapter 54, verses 2 and 3, where we read, Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. It's a tent imagery. Expand the royal tents to include all of the people of the earth. Even Psalm 100. Verse 1 reminds us that ultimately God's people will not merely be Jewish, but rather they will be Jews and Gentiles, people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And we know from the testimony of Scripture and our experience of this life, however, that not everyone on this earth will worship God. The people who worship are a particular people. They are a people whom God has made, remade, rescued, Redeemed, possessed, called his own, and led by his gracious hand. That's what verse 3 tells us. Take a look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. As you'll recall from the first point, this knowledge mentioned there at the beginning of verse 3 is a relational and faith-filled knowledge. This is significant, especially for what the people of Israel go on to say about themselves. They are a people who have been made. This is certainly true for them individually and corporately. Individually, we know that God is the author of, of all human life. Psalm 139, verse 13, powerfully reminds us of this. There we read, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. See, we are not self-made men and women. We are God-made men and women. Over and over again, when you read the birth narratives in Scripture, we read that it is the Lord who gives life. We need only think of barren Sarah and promised Isaac. It was the Lord who told Abraham in Genesis 17, 16, I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And then just a few chapters later, 
in Genesis 21, verses 1 to 2, we read, The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. The Lord gives life. He made us individually. And there is a special sense in which he made the people of Israel corporately. He made them as a nation from one man, from Abraham. And the Old Testament scriptures, it's clear that in some respects, the Lord views the people of Israel as a corporate entity, as, as one. There's a corporate solidarity. So in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord calls the people and nation of Israel, my son. So listen to what the Lord says to Moses in Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 to 23. The Lord said, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let my people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So not only do we hear God viewing the people of Israel as his son and child, but we also hear the Lord viewing his people as belonging to him. There's my son. And isn't that what we hear in verse 3? So we see this here in verse 3. Don't the people of Israel confess we are His. We are His people. The people of God are conscious that they belong to God. In the words of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, the people of Israel are God's treasured possession. And this is true of the new covenant people of God too. In the words of the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we hear, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So do you recognize that you belong to God? You're His possession. He made us. We are His. His authorship over our lives means that we do not define who we are. He defines us. God's authorship over the lives of His people implies and assures His authority too. Take, take a look at the end of verse 3. We are His people and the sheep of his pasture. So do, do sheep lead and guide themselves? No. They are led and guided by a shepherd. This confession by the ancient people of God demanded humility and a willingness to be led. In fact, at some level, we can say that sin is simply a rejection of the truth of verse 3. Sin's a rejection of the truth of verse 3. Sin is rebellion against God. It may reject God's authorship of our lives, or at least claim that his authorship doesn't matter. Sin, rebellion against God says, I don't belong to you. I am autonomous. I am not his, I am mine. And therefore, rebellion against God will ultimately say, I won't be led by you. I'm going to do what I'm going to do and what I want to do. Have you done this? Of course you have. We, we all have. Each and every one of us here this morning have thrown off God's gracious rule. We have rejected His loving presence in our lives and proclaimed our autonomy, declared our independence from Him. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 The Bible also tells us that the wages of sin, the, the payment that's due to sin, our rejection of God, death is due to that. Our rejection of God's gracious rule, His loving presence, 
and our dependence upon Him means that we deserve to be punished for our sin. And yet the truth about God that we find in Psalm 100, verse 3 and verse 5, gives us hope. The God of the Bible is the God of goodness, of love, and faithfulness. He is the God whom we should worship. So let's turn now and think about our third point, the God who is worshipped. And as we do, let's read uh, the psalm again. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. So here we're thinking about the God who is worshipped. Four times in this psalm we are confronted with the fact that this is a psalm of thanks to the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D you'll notice there in the text. It's just a simple way of translating the divine name. Yahweh. Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? He is the God of heaven and earth. The one who names himself. We are all given names by others. But God names himself. He is the great I Am. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. In the words of the old but much beloved catechism, uh, our God is a spirit infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. His name as Lord also indicates His authority to rule and govern His creation. Still, Psalm 100 tells us more about this great God. Our Lord and God can be served, verse 2. Our Lord and God invites sinful men into His presence, verse 2, which means He is gracious and forgiving. He is creative, caring, and kind. We see that in verse 3. He is the good shepherd of His sheep. And, And really here is where we need to stop and remember that our God and good shepherd did not merely lead and guide His people from the heavens, but He came to earth. So keeping one finger here, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, to John chapter 10. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe John chapter 10 is on page 896 of the Bibles provided. We're going to start reading in the middle of what is sometimes called the Good Shepherd Discourse, where Jesus is teaching His disciples and others about who He is. He's telling them, I am the Good Shepherd. So let's begin reading there. In verse 7. I'm going to read verses 7 to 18. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay, my, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the good shepherd of Psalm 100. Jesus told us explicitly in Luke chapter 24, verse 44, that the Psalms were about Him. And let's just notice a few things about our good shepherd while we're here in John 10. Uh, because actually they tie into the truth of Psalm, the last verse 2 of Psalm 100. Not only does Jesus reveal himself to be the door, the only way to eternal life, but he also reveals himself to be the good shepherd, the one who gives eternal life to a sheep. He is good not only because of who he is in and of himself and in his person, but also because of what he does, his work. He lays down his life for the sheep. And that statement is undoubtedly looking to the cross, where Jesus would die for all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in him. Jesus lays down his life for those whom he knows and calls by name. Jesus' sacrifice, his death, was for his sheep. This is what makes Jesus different from all the rest. Thieves and robbers come to prey upon the sheep. And hired hands run away when the danger comes. Not Jesus. Love does not run away. He is a shepherd who will die so that his sheep may live. That is how the abundant, the eternal life is secured. This is how Psalm 100 can take place in your life. Jesus' death is how you may give thanks to God today and every day and for all eternity. And Jesus' voluntary sacrificial death for his people is why the Father loves the Son, as verses 17 and 18 makes clear. Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. The Father was delighted with the Son's joyful obedience in giving his life for the sheep. Jesus received this charge from his Father, and he was pleased to do it. Jesus loved to obey God the Father. Because he loved God the Father. And notice there too in verses 17 and 18. Who is in complete control? It's Jesus. He says that he lays his life down. No one takes it from him. Yes, he was nailed to the cross by Roman soldiers. Yes, he was wrongly convicted in a Jewish court. But that was all because he willingly gave his life for his sheep. He went to the cross to bear the sins and the punishment due to them for his sheep. And he did not run away when danger came. And he did not join forces with the religious leaders to prey upon the sheep. Instead, 
He laid down his life for his sheep because he loves them. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. Is is death the end? He laid his life down so that, that's a purpose clause. Jesus is telling us the reason that he laid his life down. He laid his life down so that he would take it up again. He had the authority and power to do so. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was not plan B. Oh no, this went horribly wrong. And so let's do something about it. No, that was not plan B. It was part of the original plan. Jesus laid his life down so that he could take it up again. And in Jesus, we see how verse 5 of Psalm 100 is so full of power. So just turn back to Psalm 100. And take a look there at verse 5. I think that's on page 500 of the Bibles provided. Psalm 100, verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. Don't you see? It is in Jesus Christ that God shows us His goodness. His ultimate goodness. He is good to sinners like you and me who have thrown off God's gracious rule, rejected his loving presence in our lives, and proclaimed our autonomy, our independence from him. He is so good that he says, no, I made you. You are mine, and I am a good shepherd. I will not let you give yourself to the wolves of this world. It is in Jesus Christ that we see God's steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love marched through the centuries and took on human flesh in the first century. In Jesus Christ, God's steadfast love came to life on earth and in love he was buried under the earth and raised up from the earth so that those who would turn from their sins and put their faith in him would live forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth. In Jesus Christ, God's faithfulness was demonstrated to all generations In the very first man, Adam, he heard the promise of a coming Redeemer and Savior. And God was faithful to keep that promise. All generations can see this in His Word. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want you to know that this is the God whom Christians worship. And this is the God that I want to invite you to come today in faith and worship Him. Believe that God took on flesh in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, being fully God and fully man, lived the sinless life that you and I have not lived. And He laid His life down on the cross, died, bearing the punishment for sinners like you and me. And yet, He took it back up three days later in His resurrection. Worship Him by turning from your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you want to know more about what this means for your life, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. Or speak with the family member or friend that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important you can think about than this good news. What it means to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of His sheep. Friends, brothers and sisters, as we conclude, I want us to consider this. These these commands to worship by a people who are made for worship to the God who deserves our worship do not conclude with the end of our worship service this morning. 
or even this evening. It is the character of our God and the salvation that He accomplished in Jesus Christ which gives us the reason and motivation to obey these commands. Do you remember when I said that joy and gladness were commanded? And now, sometimes that could be a hard thing. How we need a theology that empowers us to obey these commands, to rejoice and to give thanks and be glad even in the face of the difficulty. Look at the end of the psalm again. Verse 5, it begins with a, a little but powerful word. For. We make a joyful noise. Serve Him with gladness. Sing to Him. Know Him. Enter into praise. Give thanks and bless His name for. That is to say, because He has been good to us, loved us, and been faithful to us. Our worship of God this day and each day and every day is preparation for the last day when we will enter into the gates of the new heaven and the new earth to declare His praise. Let's pray together.